Uh, let us turn to Hebrews chapter 12. I'll just be reading the first two verses of this chapter. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. If you have a pew Bible, you can find it on page 948. Hebrews chapter 12, 1 to 2. And when you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's holy scripture. Hear now the infallible and inerrant word of the Lord. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the glory that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, so don't call it a comeback, except um, the brass has made a comeback in our prelude. And I am one of a particular like I am someone who enjoys brass and so <clears throat> last time I don't know I'm not trying to embarrass them or anything but last time they did give part of that prelude and then some new people showed up and some new people were asking if it was the first time these gentlemen had played this instrument and obviously it's not true but then, you know, some people have asked me, how come you insist on these two people uh, playing the brass? Is it just because you like the brass so much? And so there is a balance. I don't, I don't like anybody, let's say, that's a novice that would come up here or anything to that effect. That's not the point. But the point is, I think there are sometimes some things that you would think is very valuable. And the more valuable you think it is, then it's worth the endurance, it's worth the journey, it's worth the discipline, it's worth sweating, it's worth the tears, it's worth the blood. It's worth it. And it's about endurance. So you might see them now, maybe they haven't touched the instrument in 20 years, but I would say, well, if you keep at it, let's see them 20 years from now. I bet you didn't think about that, huh? I think long term, bro. Uh, but this chapter as well, before this chapter, we had a catalog of the exemplars of the faith, the heroes of the faith, the hall of famers of faith. And in this chapter now, we are shown why they were mentioned. We start with the author of Hebrews telling us that we are surrounded by these exemplars of the faith. And the adjective so great that was read can refer then, and I hope that we get this, is not simply the quantity of the witnesses, but the quality of their faith. It's the quantitative part and the qualitative part that we are to notice. We are surrounded by Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, 
We continue down to Moses, the people who crossed the Red Sea, to Joshua. Then we see we have the prophets. We also have Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, Zechariah, Isaiah, Jeremiah. They were all the people that were mentioned just one chapter before. And when you think about this, when you think that we start off this verse now and this chapter saying we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we are surrounded by such an example of faith, this qualitative and quantitative idea is a picture at first glance then if you were to imagine you being surrounded might be that of a stadium or arena and in this stadium there are athletes participating in the games and you are one of those athletes participating in the games the Olympic Games. And you could even imagine this cloud of witnesses then in the stands perhaps, cheering us on like spectators. They call your name as you run. Go Gilbert. You know, that kind of thing. And I think that's okay of a picture to start with. But I also think that's an incomplete picture. In the Bible, a witness is simply never a spectator. A witness, every single time that we've seen in the Bible, is an active participant as well. A witness then is someone who confesses the truth. They attest to the nature of our faith, the possibilities of faith, and the validity of the faith. They are meant to give us drive, inspire us, and propel us forward to what? What are they meant to drive us to, inspire us to, to propel us to? They are meant to drive us, inspire us, and propel us to discipleship. I think we could easily miss this if we aren't paying attention. We think we are being called to some ethereal pie in the sky as if you're dancing on clouds. That's the Christian promise, you know. But that's not the picture that we're shown here. If you're a Christian, what is the image or the metaphor that is used for you? You are an athlete participating in the games and around you there is a great, a great cloud of witnesses. Who's around you? It's people that were mentioned here. Moses, Abraham, Abel, and go on. Like Those are the people that are around you. The Christian life is not the feeling where the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, and you're like, that's Amora. You know, you're dancing in the street like a cloud at your feet. No one knows D. Martin? D. Martin, please. Uh, but that's not the kind of feeling of the Christian life. The Christian life is a race. And there are those that have come before us that are witnesses to the faith. You know, if I were to give you a very personal story of mine, 
when I first started, uh, well, I, you know, I struggled. There are many of you that have known me for, I think now, uh, almost 20 years. And there are those even here that oversaw my pastoral journey as an elder or a deacon. And I struggled. I didn't know if I wanted to be a pastor. And now you guys might look at me and then look at my past and be like, obviously, what, five generations of pastors, you know, you're set, you were locked in from the beginning. But that's not how I felt maybe 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. 10 years ago, around 10 years ago, I think, now, uh, I became a pastor late in my life. And I didn't know if I wanted to be a pastor or not. You know, it was something I struggled with. You know, is it really the life that God has for me? Is it the call that he has given me? And obviously those that were around me maybe didn't think twice about it, but I had many doubts. Um, My grandfather, he was still alive. And I remember asking him, uh, well, he asked me, Eugene, do you want to be a pastor? And I said, Grandpa, I don't think I've been called, or I'm not sure if I've been called. And he said, oh, that's okay. You know, don't go, don't be a pastor until you're called. And that gave me a lot of relief, because I felt this immense pressure. And if you were there with me uh, throughout my, in Korean it's called Jondosa. I call it the Jondosa regime. Uh, it's the era where you train to be a pastor. And if you were there with me, you could have you maybe witnessed some of that struggle. I enjoyed pastoring, I suppose. I enjoyed being with the youth and then college and then EM. And then my grandfather about 10 years ago passed away. And I remember having the call or the conviction to actually get ordained and be a pastor. And so on his deathbed, I said, Grandpa, I've, I've been called. And he was so relieved. He was so happy. And uh, like about a week later, he passed. But I remember during that time when he was on his deathbed, we would visit him often because we didn't know when he would pass. And I was thinking, you know, I wish Grandpa could see me preach or all those things like that. Uh, He was a man who came from Korea, you know, started a small church here. His mission and vision was to really proselytize or preach to the Korean immigrants that would come from Korea So he had a mission, he had a goal, he was sent. And so those are things that I was thinking about. I remember he was in a lot of pain because he had cancer when he passed. He was in a lot of pain, but then there was this one moment where he would think and say something clearly, and that was he had this dream or vision. He had this dream or vision that he would be preaching to a thousand people. And I remember that very distinctly because my dad was there, and when we heard it, they're like, oh, maybe because he's had this vision, he'll live a little longer. Uh, But, you know, he passed away maybe a week after that dream. So, you know, that still stays in your mind, right? Preaching to a thousand people. And that's what he would be thinking about or dreaming about or imagining. He's never done that before. And then I became ordained, I think, a few months before uh, he passed, but just a few months after his death, as a new pastor, uh, the churches in this county decided to have a Good Friday service. Some of you were there. This is maybe seven, eight years ago. 
And we decided to have it at Dwight Morrow High School. And in Dwight Morrow High School, they said, since you're the newbie, you should preach. And I was like, okay, I mean, you can't say no, right? You're the new guy. You got to do what these senior pastors tell you, right? And so I prepared my sermon for Good Friday. And for that year, for whatever reason, Dwight Morrow was packed. We actually had to turn cars away. You might remember this. You might not. And we did the count. And the count was over 1,000 people. So I remember thinking about my grandpa. I'm thinking, oh, wow, he had this vision. And then, like a few months later, there I am, preaching the word of God to 1,000 people. The great cloud of witnesses that we are to think about isn't just somebody who's rooting you on. They are active participants. Their life is a part of your life. You know the faith of Abraham affects you? It's a part of your faith. Did you recognize that? Do you realize that? Do you know this? The faith of Moses is a part of your faith too. The faith of Jacob, Isaac, Joseph, all these incredible heroes, they're a part of you. They're not just spectators. They're there and you're surrounded, you're immersed in them because their faith is a part of your faith. And that's the picture that we see. It's not simply the, the, the cloud of witnesses are just spectators, but they are also active participants. And that's what I mean by that. And again, it's not some pie-in-the-sky feeling that you're supposed to have when you think about the faith. This is serious stuff. This is heavy stuff. But it's also incredible stuff. It's incredible. Maybe you don't have a legacy of generations of Christians in your family. That's okay. Because who's your legacy? It's these heroes here. They're your legacy. Isn't that incredible? And it's to show us that there is a race prescribed to you right now. Right now, you are in a race. And these witnesses give testimony that the race is real, and they also give testimony to the validity of their faith. Their faith wasn't for naught. It wasn't for no reason. But there's a heaviness and a truth behind the faith. And that's why we don't run aimlessly in this life. We don't box as one beating the air, like Paul would say in 1 Corinthians. This is the real deal. And so why is the Christian life of discipleship compared to a race? We are being shown that this isn't some practice round or training. Christian discipleship is the real deal. Because the word translated to race is from the Greek word agon. Agon can also mean fight or struggle. Now I bet you can relate to that. Your Christian discipleship life is a fight. It's a struggle. And the, the reason being is that you, when you train for a marathon, you train hard. There are a few folks here that have trained hard and have run also or will run marathons in the near future. 
But think about this. Those of you who are training, who have trained before, no matter how hard you went in training, isn't it different when you're in the race? When you're actually competing, it's different. In a race, you engage in contest. You exert the maximal amount of effort because all your energy now is going to be poured into attaining the goal. That's the race you're in. That's why you have a great cloud of witnesses. And the race isn't a sprint. The scriptures show us that it is a long race. You need to run with endurance. There are those that may think that if you just sprint a mile, you're fine, then you get tired and you give up. But if that's the case, if you think you could just sprint every once in a while when you get to church and then the rest of the time you give up, then you either weren't informed of the nature of the race or you blatantly disregard the rules of the contest. Maybe you make up your own as you go along. You might even think to yourself, in my heart, I'm a winner, right? Perhaps in your heart, you're a winner, but there's no prize for you. There is no participation award in the Christian life. You are exhorted to run to win. Look at all those other runners before you. A great cloud of witnesses. And if I'm to be frank, it's a humbling thought really, to be lumped in with these great heroes of the faith. You know, I haven't been lifting weights a long time. I enjoy it now. I think it is a wonderful discipline. But when I first started lifting just a few years ago, everyone, everyone could lift more than me. Everyone. But even then, I was happy to be surrounded by people who would encourage me. And yes, also, by lifting with these fellow brethren, I got to see firsthand what proper form looked like, what explosiveness looked like, what consistency looked like. And sure enough, slowly, I did get stronger. Now I like golf, but that's a different story. Imagine learning golf in your late 40s. That's, that's funny, huh? But anyway... My, my dad's not here, but tomorrow I heard that he was going to go golfing for the first time. And I said, Dad, did you practice? He said, what's that? I said, okay, that's going to be fun. <clears throat> now the physical body will deteriorate. There will come a time in your life where you will not be able to physically run as fast, lift as much, drive the ball as far as you want to, or even have that much endurance. And you, that, that idea can get, start to get a little depressing, isn't it? But we are not talking about the physical body here. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, it says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Yes, for this journey, until Jesus comes again, our bodies will get weaker and weaker, but our spirit, our inner self, is becoming stronger and stronger. Now take that physical discipline and imagine it being placed on your spiritual life. You are getting stronger and stronger. 
So that's why we lay aside every weight that would hinder or distract us. You know, runners in a race don't run with a suit and tie. They don't run with long flowing dresses. In the ancient Greek games, the contestants removed all of their clothing so that nothing could possibly impede them in the race. Because that's the question for you, isn't it? How serious are you about winning this race? You know how serious you are by what extent you go through to make sure you have the best advantage possible. I have a baby that, ever since she could move, hated any kind of harness, seatbelt, or anything that would impede her from her freedom. Doesn't matter where she is. She could be in the car, she could be at Costco, she could be in a shop full of fragile items. But she wants to throw off her shackles and run free. This causes much consternation in my wife, as Elizabeth, once free, will dash toward a top of a flight of stairs, right? But as Christians, we do want to be free from all shackles or anything that could possibly hinder us, but we have a purpose. We have a race to run. Why would anyone purposefully put shackles on themselves if the goal is to run? If the goal is to win. And that's why we don't give in to the sin that clings so easily. Sin here is used in the general form to show us that any and all sin easily distracts. It tries to trip you up. It tries to entangle you. And Christians today are being subverted by the attractiveness of sin. Aren't they? Aren't we? And it's obviously a deceitful attractiveness. I had mentioned on Saturday, yesterday, that if I had a few weeks, I would have liked to go through the Judge Samson's life. But he would go on. There's, there's so many dimensions and aspects to his life that we can learn from and be edified with. But he would continue to fall for these Philistine prostitutes. And even if you took a second to consider maybe why he would do that, you can easily see it's because there is a deceitful attractiveness that they possessed. It caused him not only to be distracted from his purpose and goal, it tangled him up, and it eventually got him robbed of his incredible strength. His eyes were gouged out. He was captured as a slave and eventually killed. So maybe the term deceitful attractiveness is too soft. Sin is a virulent poison dressed in lipstick. It would try to entangle us so we would tire and not finish the race. Some of us are entangled by sin. And here are some telltale signs. Bitterness is growing. It's taking root in your heart. That's a sign. Thanksgiving is near impossible to give. You say, why don't you pray a prayer of thanksgiving? You say, that's too hard. That's a sign. Your worship is dry. 
That's a telltale sign. That sin is entangling you. So watch out. Be careful. That your life doesn't turn out like Proverbs 26.1, where like a dog, sorry, 26.11, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. You don't know why you keep going back to the sin because it continues to make you feel horrible, doesn't it? It puts you in a dark place, but you still do because that's what fools do. And when they are presented with an answer, an antidote to the poison, they just cry, I know, I know. Stop telling me this. But they do nothing after. It's sad to see, and as a pastor, I have to admit I've seen my fair share. But let us serve as a warning to those who don't take sin seriously, who take sin way too lightly. Now, after you hear this, some people will say, well, the common retort is this. Well, but does, doesn't God forgive my sins? The elders and I are reading this book, and in this book it says, one professor summed it up this way. The gospel of the average man is this. I like sinning, and God likes forgiving, so the world is very well set up. I like sinning and God likes forgiving, so the world is very well set up. But that kind of retort is reminiscent of Romans 1, where it says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking because <clears throat> they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And it's these people that would eventually go on to worship themselves or other idols. They became fools thinking that because God loves mercy and they like to sin, what a great symbiotic relationship that is. Doesn't God need me because he needs to forgive? That's not the Christian life, though. The Christian disciple understands that faith is a persevering devotion to Christ. And the life that is reflected in that faith is a life of consecration, a life that is set apart as holy, a sanctified life. Now when we get to verse 2, it is the pinnacle of the various exhortations and encouragements given to the believer. We've been given the picture of a great cloud of witnesses throwing off any shackles, any sin that would hinder us from in running this race with endurance. We keep to the metaphor of the race in verse 2, but we are given now the goal and the prize. Why do we throw off all the shackles, get rid of the sin that so easily entangles? And what does this have to do? What does this have to do with the great cloud of witnesses around us? Where does all of our concentration go? Who do we look to? It is the person of Jesus. Jesus is the finish line. Jesus is the prize. Jesus is the finish line. Jesus is the prize. This notion alone is a fascinating concept. How can God incarnate be a prize? What is he, like a trophy to be won? Is that what you're telling us? 
The song in the great marriage of Solomon points to a truth. In chapter 2, verse 16, it says, My beloved is mine and I am his. And I'll tell you why that is connected to this. My beloved is mine and I am his. This is about a song of marriage between husband and wife. In marriage, you give yourselves to one another. That's the only way a marriage can function. You give yourself to the other person. When you don't, the marriage ceases to be a fruitful marriage. So in marriage, you give yourselves to one another, and the relationship between Christ and His church, the Bible says, is like a marriage between a husband and wife, where Christ is the head and the church is His bride. Paul would even go on to say in Ephesians chapter 5, 32, because that's where it's from, that this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So marriage between a man and a woman is already profound with all of its complexities, nuances, delicate balances that you have to maintain if you are to fully enjoy its intended bounty. But Paul is not talking about a marriage between a husband and his wife. He's talking about the profound mystery between Christ and the church. And while this idea isn't developed in the section of Hebrews, it certainly is most alluded to. The writer focuses on Jesus, and then he says two titles. He follows with two titles. And what are those two titles in the Greek? It's archegos and teleotes. Archegos and teleotes, just two titles. And it's translated as founder and perfecter of our faith. The founder and perfecter. If you think about it, founder, perfecter, founder, perfecter. It is the beginning and the end. Jesus is the beginning and end of our faith. Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. Yes, but there's even more to it than that. Otherwise, it would have just said Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. Archegos is the champion of our faith. And Teleotes is the complete expression of that faith. Jesus is that. He is the archegos, the champion of the faith, and the teleotes, the complete expression of that faith. So while we have the exemplars of faith in the previous chapter, Christ is now being shown as the ultimate example of our faith. It's his life, death, resurrection that is to provide for us now the ultimate example to follow. Are we keeping up with this? The ultimate example for us to follow if we're to run this race is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The way we engage our faith is to be fashioned according to the way Christ showed us by His example. He was the first who expressly followed to perfection the will of God in this fallen world. You know, people are trying to convince you, how can you be perfect when the world is so corrupt? Dismantle the world. Dismantle the systems. Dismantle the government. Riot and all that. Because once we get rid of all these corrupt systems, you think you will be free. That's not what we are being taught. Jesus was still perfect, even though the world was incredibly fallen. So what is he showing us? That even if you don't upturn democracy or rebel against this country, even if you don't do that, you can be perfect. Jesus showed us that he was perfect. So it is possible. It is possible to fully and perfectly follow the will of God because he did it. 
Well, you might answer then, well, that's because it was Jesus. What are you trying to say, you know? That you're Jesus? But it's the same Jesus who says this, now you take up your cross and follow me. Jesus is the lead. He's the initiator. He's the rank and file in the order of faith. He's the archegos. And he shows us what the results of life that is full of faith, what it looks like and what it amounts to. He shows us the full expression, the ultimate expression of our faith. He is the paragon of faith. But Jesus also brought and exercised his faith to a triumphant completion. He is the teleotes. He is the finisher. He is the perfecter. Teleotes is from the word telos, which we understand is the end or completion. So Jesus is the one whose faith has reached its perfection. There are other exemplars. They're great, and as great as they were, they could not bring their faith to completion. And here the writer is expressly showing us while they could not, Jesus did. It's important that we get this, because once you get it, there's a reason why. So what does this mean? That Jesus is the perfect exemplar. He is the perfect embodiment of faith. There is a qualitative aspect to that. And this is where you really have to engage your minds to understand. You see, all these people were waiting to be perfected in their faith, but it's Jesus who perfected it. That means faith is made perfect in Jesus. That's a very heavy statement. Faith is made perfect in Jesus. When we have faith now in Jesus, we have a faith that is perfected, that has been perfected. Do you see what it's saying? There's no more lacking. There's nothing missing from the faith that is in Jesus Christ. Now, this is a difficult concept, so I'd like to make some distinctions. That's why I say we must engage our minds now. Perhaps when you think of faith, you only see faith as a dimension of private faith. It's just a personal faith. When I say you have to have faith, it's just about my personal faith. But he's talking more than just personal faith. He's talking about when you have faith in Jesus, there is nothing about the faith in itself that is lacking. That is an incredible statement. There is nothing missing, nothing that needs to be added on, nothing more that needs to be revealed according or concerning that faith. I was like, maybe you're getting a little too philosophical here. No, I don't think so. I think you guys can get it. I think we all can get it. Every belief, every belief while you live in this life has something lacking. That's what I want to get across. Every belief has something lacking. Think of the most sure thing that you could think of right now. What do you have faith in? What are you so sure about? You can have, with almost certainty, faith that the chair that you're sitting on right now will support you while I give this message. Now I'd say that's a pretty good faith to have. But notice I said almost certain faith, with almost certainty. There is a possibility that your chair may break. It's actually pretty old. It's 10 years old or, some, or more. People have been sitting on it, Kids have been playing on it, maybe even jumping on it. 
it's been moved back and forth, here and there, maybe thrown, thrown about. It can actually break. It might break. I hope it doesn't. But it might. But the faith that we are talking about now, faith that leads the Christian to God, a godly life, true discipleship, that faith has been perfected. It will not fail. How do we know this? Jesus Christ perfected it. Now the call then isn't to perfect your faith. That's not your job. Your job isn't to perfect your faith. The call through Jesus, because we have entered into a new age of faith, the call is to endure in the faith. It's to persevere in the faith. And in the latter portion of verse 2, the author reminds us that Jesus Christ endured the cross. The grammatical structure, if you're paying attention, is the same as the call for endurance for the race set before us. Endure the race set before us. Jesus endured the cross, the same grammatical Greek structure. So just as Jesus endured the cross that was set before him, think about that, just as Jesus endured the cross that was set before him, we are to endure the race that is set before us. And you might be wondering how this is more of an incentive than the other heroes of the faith in chapter 11. Well, first, let me remind you again that the people in chapter 11 did not receive what was promised. Jesus, however, gained the possession of the promise and through Christ, Christians also gain possession of that promise. Now, here's some help to understand that. It says, despising the shame. Despising the shame. Why did he put that in there? It's just two verses, but it's heavy. We need to be paying attention. Despising the shame. There was no lack in Jesus' life that he had to be shamed. You know, if we are shamed, sure, we're sinners. But there was no lack in Jesus' life that he had to be shamed. There was no lack in the relationship between the Father and the Son. It was a perfect relationship. Jesus is fully God. The union between the Father and Jesus is absolute. And that's why the tragedy of the shame is catastrophic. You know, <clears throat> I'll give you something of a recent example. Two years ago, two years ago is when the world first heard about the horror of the alleged mass graves of indigenous children across residential schools in Canada. In Canada, they supposedly found all these mass graves of indigenous children. And these schools were mainly run by Roman, the Roman Catholic Church. And the people from the Roman Catholic Church came in, or they apologized. People were outraged. How could this be the horror of it all? And so, during the last two years, they burned down and vandalized churches all across Canada, 83 in total, I think, with little to no reprieve from the government. Now, after two years, after two years, they've come up with bupkis. They come up with nada, nothing. They dug for two years and all they found were rocks on these so-called mass graves. Where's the apology? No apology. But I want you to think about this example. 
Why were people so up in arms about this in the first place? Isn't it because they thought they found evidence of mass graves? That means the people were buried and possibly killed in the most humiliating way. They didn't deserve this. And the belief here is they didn't deserve this death, especially because they were children. So the rage. So that means the more the disparity between what we think someone deserves and what they actually get, the more there is a disparity, the more enraged we become, saddened we become, horrified we can become. And I want to bring that sentiment back to Jesus Christ. Jesus died a humiliating death on a Roman cross. Now, as Christians that have been hearing it in and out on Sundays, we think it's just a commonplace concept. But think about it. When you think about it, it is the most egregious act that could have ever been done. The most perfect, the most beautiful, the most high died the most cruel and humiliating death. Where is the moral outrage there? But here it says that he despised its shame. He took it on so that he could share in the race of endurance. Jesus went down the path of obedience and ultimate suffering. He forsook his own pleasure and submitted to the cross. The God of the universe died a death of a common criminal, but he endured. And the completion of his endurance is marked by the stark contrast now that he is now seated at the right hand of God. To be seated means his salvific work is done, and now he rules. To be in session means to be seated and to rule. He is ruling. And so God identified himself with extreme human wretchedness by dying on the cross. Why? It was for us. It was for us. But the crucified Jesus is the exalted son. The utter security for those then that have placed their faith in Jesus is guaranteed by him, the author, showing us that Jesus is now at the session of the right hand of God. What that means, and I'm going to close that segment of that question that I wanted you to start engaging your minds. What that means is that there is nothing more sure for the Christian now. There is nothing sure for the Christian now. It's, it's as if Christ were saying himself, I want you to endure because I have secured the ultimate prize for you. You know, love brings a level of anxiety. Love is great. When you get married, it's great. When you're dating, it's great. When you have a kid, it's great. When you have parents that you love, it's great. Friends you love, it's great. But it brings a level of anxiety, doesn't it, when you think about it? Because however long it is, the greater the love, the greater the sadness that awaits because there will be an end to it. You know, I, I, I love my parents, but there will be an end. And so the greater the sadness. points us to the fact that love was meant to be eternal. Love was meant to be eternal. 
And yet we see how life is so fleeting. One minute it's here and the next poof, it's gone. Those riddled with anxiety or doubt, the scriptures are showing us that we can look upon and meditate just on these two verses to see how we can rest assured in our faith. Because now nothing can separate us from the love of God. There is no end to that love. The ultimate love, there is no end. 1 John 4.16 says, So we have come to know and to believe that the love, the love that God has for us, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. If you have faith in Jesus, you are the beloved of God. And Christ assures us that we are his and he is ours. Therefore, let us endure this race that is set before us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the exhortation that you give us the encouragement that you surround us with, the great witnesses that we can look to, and help us in our lives to run this race with endurance. Forgive us of those times we merely thought it should be a short sprint only to give up. Give strength to these weak knees. Empower us to run so that we can win the prize. Give us your strength. Guide us by your Holy Spirit. Let's take this time to pray and ask the Lord to continue to watch over you in your faith journey, holding on to the promise that he has given us, the assuredness that we have that he is the founder and perfecter of the faith that we possess. Let's take this time to pray.